Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analyzing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. And today we're looking at chapters 16, 17, and 18 of Allegiant. So, where we left off, David told everyone all about the Purity War, which was a thing that happened apparently. And I really actually don't want to even <laughs> briefly recap it because it was so bonkers. But rest assured, all those revelations left everybody reeling, and some not for the reasons that you would think. Tris found out all about this genetic warfare, genetic manipulation, all of the simulations, all about how her whole life has been an experiment, and really, she only cared about the cameras watching her. So we open chapter 16, and we're in Tobias's POV, and he says, even though we just fell asleep, I then wake up a few hours later, it's midnight, and he can't get back to sleep because his mind's swarming with thoughts. So he pops on his shoes, he goes for a little walk, he thinks about Amar, and he thinks about how a week into his initiation, Amar was worried that he was becoming isolated and obsessive, so he invited Tobias to join some of the older Dauntless for a game of Dare. Of course the Dauntless play Dare to pass the time. Not truth or dare, just dare. They're not interested in the truth, they're not candor. Do you think at candor they just play truth? (laughs) I bet they do. And his dare was to get his first tattoo, which I think is a bit much. Like, I don't want to be that Debbie Downer at a party, but if someone wants to play truth or dare, there needs to be limits. You can't be daring people to get tattoos or put their lives at risk and do things that will seriously damage them. That takes the fun out of the game. But I guess in Dauntless, there are no rules and everybody loves tattoos. So he's like, I got my first tattoo. It was agonizing and I relished every second of it. Cool story, bro. Don't know why I need to know this. And because Veronica Roth is a very clunky writer, Because he was just thinking about Amar, we bump into Amar. So he heads up to the atrium, he's looking around, and then someone behind him goes, you're not nearly as vigilant as you used to be, and it's Amar. And Amar's like, I followed you all the way here from the hotel lobby. And Four's like, okay, who gives a shit? What do you want? And he says, well, I thought you might like an explanation for why I'm not dead. And he goes, yeah, I thought about it. But then I realized I never saw your body, so I guess they just faked the body. It's like, okay. Tobias, good deductive reasoning, but also maybe... Have a follow-up conversation, maybe engage. Entertain the chat. He's offering to give you answers and you're like, yeah, I guess you just faked a body. I don't really care. You do care, mate. Why are you trying to pretend? And Amar says, well, they faked my death because I was divergent and Janine had started killing the divergent and no one ever tried to stop Janine, apparently. Well, he says they tried to save as many as they could before she got to them but it was tricky because she was always one step ahead. Was she? If they're watching the whole experiment through all of the security cam footage, I don't know how Janine managed to keep so far ahead of them. And so Force says, all right, well, who else isn't dead? And he's like, well, a few. 
but Natalie Pryor, she is dead, unfortunately. She also helped me get out and this other guy, George Wu. Do you know him? And Tobias is like, oh my God, that's Tori's brother. Remember Tori thought her brother was dead, but apparently he's been alive, living out at Chicago O'Hare Airport this whole time. And so Amar's like, oh, you know him? And uh, Tobias is like, yeah, bad news. Tori is kaput. She's dead. She's gonzo. And Amar's like, oh, that's unfortunate. And so while all that big, heavy conversation's happening, Tobias is looking around at the atrium, looking at the flowers, and he's thinking, these flowers are quite pretty. He's only used to seeing flowers that were grown for a purpose. And he's like, these plants were grown for beauty, not practicality. And he's like, ugh, whatever this place is, it had not needed to be as pragmatic as our city. Like, okay, cute metaphor, I guess. Like, why do I care? And Tobias just says, all right, let me put a pin in the whole flower discourse. Let me get back to the conversation at hand. And he says, so the woman who found your body, what, was she just lying? And Amar goes, "Mm, no, he says her memory was reset. Her memory was altered to include me jumping off the pyre and the body that was planted wasn't actually me, but it was too messed up for anyone to notice. Okay, where'd that body come from? (laughs) Who did did we kill? Are we going to acknowledge that some, some other poor bastard is dead? And Tobias, he doesn't pick up on that just yet. He says, oh, so you're saying she was reset with what? Like the abnegation serum. And Amar says, we call it the memory serum because it doesn't actually belong to just the abnegation. So yeah, (laughs) it's like, okay, thanks for the correction on what you call the memory serum. And Tobias is a bit angry with him. He's like, God, another fucker has faked their death on me. He's like, why does this keep happening? But then he's looking at Amar and he's like, ah, well, and he gets over it. He says, my anger ebbs away like the changing of the tide. Oh, okay. And so then he's grinning and he's like, so you're alive, woohoo. And then they have a little like hug about it. So then Tobias is like, cool. So don't need to ask about who that dead person was that was your body double. Let's just park that. What do you get up to? What do you do in your spare time? Do you like living here? And Amar's like, yeah, I guess I don't really have a choice, but it's fine. I work in security. And he says, there's nowhere better out there. All the other cities. He says, most of the country live in big metropolitan areas are dirty and dangerous unless you know the right people. But here at the airport, there's clean water, there's food, there's safety. So he's like, you know, it's a pretty good gig. And Tobias is like, ugh, I don't know if I want to stay here. And then Amar says, oh, and by the way, I heard in the control room that Marcus's trial is scheduled for tomorrow morning. And Tobias is like, oh, and he doesn't really know how to feel. He's like, ugh. Do I want to watch it? Do I not want to watch it? Do I want to find out if he's safe or if he's going to get killed? What, what's going to happen? I don't, I don't know how to feel is basically what he's saying. And so he just goes back to bed and that's the end of the chapter. So that was, that was a really fun addition. I feel like some questions went unasked and unanswered, but okay, let's see if that ever pops up again. And then we go to chapter 17 and we're in Triss's POV and she's waking up just before the sun And okay, she's a regular old Columbo because she looks down and Tobias is in bed, but he's wearing his shoes. And she's like, wow, he's wearing his shoes as if he got up and walked around in the middle of the night, which is exactly what happened. And we know that that happened because we just fucking read it in a whole chapter. So I don't know why she's got to go and point it out. Like, do do we care? What's he doing going back to bed with his shoes on? Take your shoes off for? So then she goes for a wander around the airport and she thinks whoever built this place must have loved light. There is glass in the curve of each hallway ceiling and along each lower wall. Like, yeah, okay. People who designed airports, their number one priority was to foster their love of light. 
What a weird thing to think when you're just walking around being like, whoever built this place loves light. So then she stumbles across this really big sculpture. It's a huge slab of dark stone and a large crack runs through the middle of it. And there are streaks of lighter rocks near the edges and suspended above the slab is a glass tank filled with water. And there's a light above the tank to refract the light of the water or whatever. And then there's a drop of water hitting the stone. So there's a tiny little tube running through the center of the tank where this droplet of water comes from and it hits the stone that's underneath it. Okay, and she goes, I thought it was just dripping, but no, it must be intentional. She's not used to abstract art. Where she comes from, abstract art doesn't exist. The closest thing she has to art like that are the ceremonial choosing bowls. So she's still processing what art is, I think. And then Zoe pops up. What's with all these people just popping up? And Zoe says, oh, sorry, I was just about to go to the dormitory for you. Then I saw you heading this way and wondered if you were lost, which I'm not buying. I think they're all tracking them. Zoe and Amar clearly were intentionally keeping an eye on Tris and Four because they probably thought, these people are prone to wandering around in the middle of the night. Let's keep tabs on them. And Tris says, I'm not lost. This is where I meant to go, which is a bold face lie. And so then Tris like asks her about the sculpture. She's like, what's, what's the deal with this big old thing? And Zoe says, it's the symbol of the Bureau of Genetic Welfare. The slab of stone is the problem we're facing. The tank of water is our potential for changing that problem. And the drop of water is what we're actually able to do at any given time. So like all art, it must be explained for it to have meaning. And Tris is like, okay, that's not very encouraging. I don't know why you've erected a huge stone slab with a water tank suspended above it. That's, that's the weirdest fucking idea for a sculpture I've ever heard. And Zoe's like, well, yeah, I guess it could be discouraging, but I prefer to look at it like this which is that if we are persistent enough, even tiny drops of water over time can change the rock forever and it will never change back. And she points and then in the slab of stone, there's an impression from all of the little droplets hitting it. Like, okay. And so then Tris stares at it as it's just drip, drip, dripping. And Tris says, even though I'm wary of the bureau and everyone in it, I can feel the quiet hope of the sculpture working its way through me. What? It's a practical symbol communicating the patient attitude that has allowed the people here to stay for so long, watching and waiting. Can we not pretend like this is an impactful statue? And can we not pretend that watching and waiting is the best thing to do? They've just had a whole fucking purity war. Half the country's been wiped out. And they're like, yep, the best way to solve all of Earth's problems are to wait and watch like a drip, drip, drip of water. Eventually, one day we might have an impact. Like, what? And it's also just a stupid fucking sculpture to stick around in their big lab. Like who wants to hear drip, drip, drip all day? It'd drive me crazy. If my workstation was anywhere near that sculpture, I'd be asking to get placed somewhere else. I'd say, put me in another division. I can't handle that dripping noise. And then Tris says, wouldn't it be more effective to unleash the whole tank at once? Which is a good point theoretically, but it's a fucking sculpture, Tris. That would sort of defeat the point of the sculpture if you were to do that. And Zoe's like, okay, I'll. I'll indulge you and keep carrying on the metaphor. And she's like, yeah, momentarily it would, it would help, but then we wouldn't have any water left to do anything else. What? (laughs) I I think we've stretched this metaphor as far as it can go. And then she says, genetic damage isn't the kind of problem that can be solved with one big charge, isn't it? Surely it can be more streamlined than what you've got at the moment, which is locking up select cities in America. 
putting in fake factions, wiping people's minds. Like, sure, surely we can streamline that process. And Triss goes, okay, I get that. I'm just wondering if it's a good thing to resign yourself quite this much to small steps when you could take some big ones. And Zoe's like, well, like what? She's like, okay, I get you're trying to school me, but be specific. And Triss goes, I don't know, but it's worth thinking about. And she goes, okay, fair enough. And so that's that. Triss sort of made a good point, but then she did not develop it any further. And Zoe's just like, cool, whatevs. Um, it's a pretty sculpture, okay? And so I guess they're just standing there awkwardly. And then Triss is like, so you were looking for me? Like, why? And she goes, oh yeah, that's right. David asked me to find you and take you to the labs. There's something there that belonged to your mother. And she's like, oh really? So they head towards the security checkpoint again. So they're going into like the offices and Zoe's like, just a heads up, people might be staring at you because you're quite famous here because we've all been watching you. And Triss is like, yeah, I know. She reminds us again that she feels uncomfortable with the idea that everyone has been watching her. It's like, we know. You've bitched and moaned about it for a whole chapter. So she says most of the people walking the halls wear variations of the same uniform. They're either wearing dark blue or dull green. And some of them wear jackets or jumpsuits or sweatshirts open with t-shirts. And so she says, what do the uniforms mean? Like, what do the, what do the colored uniforms mean? Because in her mind, colored uniforms are very important. And Zoe says, yep, dark blue means scientist or researcher and green means support staff. They do maintenance, upkeep, things like that. And Trish says, oh, okay, so they're the factionless. And Zoe's like, no, we don't do that here. Everyone does what they can to support the mission. Everyone is valued and important. Unlike those factionless, she's basically saying the system you had in Chicago was, was bullshit. It was inequitable. It was rotten to its core. And it's like, well, bitch, you came up with that. Not you personally. But don't get on your eye horse that she's thinking that they're factionless and be like, oh, we don't do that here. It's like, well, you created that system. She also says a lot of the support staff used to be in the experiment in Indianapolis, but Indianapolis didn't have the behavioral components that Chicago had. She says after Chicago started doing well, they introduced factions into other cities such as St. Louis, Detroit, and Minneapolis, but they left Indianapolis as a control group. She says, the Bureau always placed experiments in the Midwest because there's more space between urban areas here. Out East, everything is closer together. So she's explaining that to Tris, whereas really Tris doesn't know what, what, what the fuck these cities are. She, she doesn't know what the Midwest is. So really that's Veronica explaining it for us very inorganically. But I also don't understand why th- that needs to be the case. Why did they need to pick cities that were in the Midwest why did they need urban areas that were more separated and had more space between them when you're just going to put up a big fence around it anyway? And so Triss is like, so Indianapolis, it didn't work very well then. And she's like, nah, she says genetically damaged people who have been conditioned by suffering and are not taught to live differently as the factions would have taught them to do are very destructive. She says that experiment failed quickly within three generations. Yeah, that's, that's really quick. Three generations, (laughs) super quick. Chicago, your city, and the other cities that have factions have made it through much more than that. I'm getting the impression that everyone involved, well, at least wearing the blue uniforms, everyone involved in this experiment, are the non-genetically damaged people. And it seems like all the genetically damaged people are the ones that have been rounded up and put into the cities under lockdown with their memories erased. And so like David's explanation last chapter, he seemed to be saying that the war was over and that there was a mix of genetically damaged and non-genetically damaged people. And they both wanted a resolution, but I think that's kind of BS. And I think this is really just an extra phase on the war against genetically damaged people, right? It sort of sounds like they're trying to eradicate them. 
I don't think there's this peaceful society that, that they're making out. But Tress, she doesn't think about that. She gets caught on the name Chicago. She goes, Chicago, it's so strange to have a name for the place that was always just home to me. It makes the city smaller in my mind. What? I don't know for certain, but I'm pretty sure back in book one, Divergent, she was like, this place used to be called Chicago. We just call it home or some crap like that. Like she knew it was called Chicago. I don't think this is the first time she's ever heard it called Chicago. And she's like, how odd to hear it have a name. I don't know. I think you're the one that told me it was Chicago, bub. And so Tris says, okay, so you guys have been at this for a while, yeah? And she says, yep. The Bureau is different from most government agencies because of the focused nature of our work and our contained relatively remote location. (laughs) Okay. We pass on knowledge and purpose to our children instead of relying on appointments or hirings. So what I'm hearing is they're all Nepo babies. They don't hire to the outside world. They just keep within themselves, which, which again, feels suspicious to me. It's very insular. What are they hiding? I mean, maybe they're hiding these experiments. I don't know. I'd be a bit more skeptical if I were Triss. And then she says, through the abundant windows, remember because the person who built this building loved light. Through the abundant windows, I see a strange vehicle. It's shaped like a bird with two wing structures and a pointed nose, but it has wheels like a car. So that's her first time seeing a plane. And that's how she describes it. And Zoe's like, yep, it's a plane. And Zoe says, we might be able to take you up in it sometime if it's not too daunting for you, which I think Zoe thought she was being super fucking hilarious by saying daunting, like it's referring to Tris being dauntless. It's like, I don't know if we're at the jokey stage here, Zoe. We just met you yesterday. She's processing a lot of information. Maybe back the fuck off. She just saw a plane for the first time in her life and thought it actually looked like a bird. So then they get to David and David's like, hi guys. And then Zoe fucks off for them to have a chat. David pulls over some worker and he says, get me Natalie Wright's file loaded onto a portable screen, which is what they call an iPad. And Matthew's like, yep, cool. Let me just pull that up. I've got to transfer the files over. Yep, here you go. And he hands her an iPad. And the guy says, oh, you must be Natalie's daughter, Beatrice. You don't look much like her. Like, okay, nice to meet you too, cunt. What, what, what? I feel like that's so rude. Oh, you don't look like your mum. It's like, okay, yeah. Hello, my name's Triss. What's your name? And I also doubt that this is like the first time he's ever laid eye on Triss since apparently she's been watched for her whole life and she's been the talk of the town ever since she started becoming this like heroic divergent figure. And Triss just goes, yeah, I know I, I don't look like her, thanks. And so David says, okay, while the files are getting airdropped over to the iPad, I'll let you keep the iPad, by the way. Let me just have a little chat to you about Natalie. He says, your mother was a fantastic discovery. We located her almost by accident inside the damaged world and her genes were nearly perfect. So there is a damaged world. Maybe I'm wrong and not everyone's non-damaged. I'm really struggling to comprehend this. Genetically damaged and non-damaged people must still be mixing together in the outside world, but I don't know. So they found this Natalie and they figured out she had amazing near-perfect genes. Somehow, are they just looking at someone and being like, oh yeah, she's got good genes. Like, how are they, how are they figuring all this out? Uh, so they said, we took her out of a bad situation, doesn't elaborate on what that situation is, and brought her here. She spent years at the airport but then we encountered a crisis within your city's walls and she volunteered to be placed inside to resolve it. And he says, I'm sure you know all about that though. And it's like, well, I don't, I don't think Tris does know. Also, it turns out that she was like 15 or 16 at the time. So why are you letting like a, a teenager volunteer 
to go be an undercover op in this city. What, what, that doesn't make any sense. And so Tris goes, no, I don't know, actually. What, what is this crisis you refer to? And he says, oh, well, the erudite representative had just begun to kill the divergent, of course. His name was Norman. And then Matthew, the guy fiddling with the iPad, he says, nah, it's Norton. Janine's predecessor was named Norton. Seems he passed on the idea of killing off the divergent to her right before his heart attack. So someone was killing all of the divergent within Erudite. Weird that that happens twice. You know, if I had a dollar for every time a leader of Erudite tried to kill all the divergent, I'd have $2, which isn't a lot, but it's weird that it's happened twice. You know what I mean? So that happened and they actually activated and sent someone in to stop it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Allegedly, even though he's saying he died of a heart attack, which I don't know, I would have thought they would have sent her in to assassinate him, but maybe, maybe they did and they just are lying that it's a heart attack. I don't know. So they did that once, but they can't do that again when Janine's doing it. What? Or like, if you've already sent someone in to try and stop that situation from happening, why did you let Janine foster this idea of killing off divergent people? Why did you not get rid of Janine at the time? Seems like they sent Triss's mum in to like half solve the problem. She just put a little bandaid on, on the Janine problem. Oh, it doesn't make any sense to me. So he says, we sent Natalie in to investigate the situation and to stop the deaths. And I guess once you do that once, you can never do it ever again no matter how many divergent people Janine killed. And she was still in there. Her mum was still in there. They didn't pull her out. Her mum could have easily stopped Janine. I don't, I don't know. 
they say, yeah, we never actually thought of having like a super secret spy, but once she was in, she stayed in and she was actually quite useful for us. And Tris goes, yeah, okay, but plot hole, the Divergent was still being killed when I was an initiate. And David goes, ah, you only know about the ones who died, not about the ones who didn't die. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's really comforting. He says, some of them are here in this compound, which confuses me as well because I uh, like, what's the purpose? They, so, okay. So they've taken the Divergent people out of the experiment, but I thought the purpose was to keep them in there so that then they could breed and have more genetically perfect people? Or should they not be taken out and put somewhere else so that they could then also breed with other genetically perfect people? As much as this has been going on for generations, it still doesn't feel like they have a game plan. Like what's the next step once you've started getting all these genetically perfect people? What are you gonna do with them? And so Tris is like, okay, um, all right. So does that mean that she wasn't really born a Dauntless? Cause she's unpacking all of the lies that her mum told her, which is a shit ton. And he says, oh no, when she first entered the city, it was as a Dauntless because she already had tattoos. <laughs> he said, it would have been too hard to explain her tattoos to the natives. He calls them the natives. Like, oh, let's just let that one slide. He said, she was 16, but we said she was 15. So she would have some time to adjust. So yeah, easy enough to change her age, but not easy enough to remove a tattoo. They can remove specific genes but they don't want to remove a tattoo. They're like, oh, she's got a tattoo, put her in Dauntless. What? And yeah, why are you getting a 16 year old to do all of this? And David's like, read about it on the the iPad later. There's some journal entries in there for you. And she's like, cool. So David says, Matthew, walk her back to the hotel. So then they walk off. She gives us a little description of Matthew and he's tall and he's got like tussled emo hair. He's wearing like a necklace around his throat. It shifts over his Adam's apple when he swallows. We're getting a very specific image of this guy. I think maybe because he's a bit of a cutie patootie. I think that's what Veronica's trying to get at here. And so while they're walking, Matthew, the cutie patootie, he says, oh, when are you going to freak out about all this stuff? And she's like, I'm not going to. And then Matthew's like, cool, cool, cool. By the way, one of the things my supervisor and I do is genetic testing. Oh, because that's not gotten people into a world of trouble before. Why are they still doing this? He says, I was wondering if you and that other guy, Marcus Eaton's son, would you guys mind coming in so that I can test your genes? And she's like, why? And he goes, just curiosity. (laughs) We haven't gotten to test the genes of someone in such a late generation of the experiment before. And you and Tobias seem to be somewhat odd in your manifestations of certain things. And she's like, huh? And he says, well, you, for example, have displayed extraordinary serum resistance. Yes, she has. I'm glad this is being brought up. He says, most of the Divergent aren't as capable of resisting serums as you are. And then he says, and Tobias can resist simulations, but he doesn't display some of the characteristics we've come to expect of the Divergent. And so Tris, I would have thought having heard this whole big story about how there was a purity war that all got started because of genetic manipulation, genetic testing, there became a genetic haves and haves nots. Her whole life was a lie because they're trying to ferret out people with better genes. And she's like, yeah, cool. Yeah, sure. You can test me whenever you want. (laughs) I would have been like, excuse me, like maybe not. I don't trust you guys just yet. And she's like, whatever. And she goes, yeah. And I'll ask if Tobias is up for it. And he's like, oh, okay, cool. So maybe in like an hour. And she's like, yeah, whatever. I don't give a shit. She actually feels excited to learn more about her genes. I'd be more excited about reading your mother's journal on that iPad, but I guess, I guess we're not just going to dive into that right away. I'd be looking at that straight a fucking way. And uh, she's like, yeah, cool, cool. 
test my genes, whatevs. So that's the end of that chapter. We go to chapter 18, which is in a Tobias POV. Tobias is now awake. He's going through his morning routine, having a shower, all that jazz. And he's thinking about how it's Marcus's trial today. So he grabs a muffin from the tray of breakfast food that someone brought in. And he sees Tris and he goes up to her and he's like, oh, hey, bub, what were you doing up so early? And she's like, ah, just going for a walk. Looked at that big sculpture thing. Had a chat to David, gave me this iPad. It's my mother's journal. I'll look at it later. And he's like, why aren't you reading it? Which is exactly what I want to know. And she's like, ah, I think I'm afraid of it. So he then thinks that this is an abnegation thing. Abnegation children rarely know their parents because it's self-indulgent and selfish for parents to share their lives with their children or some bullshit. So she probably doesn't know much about her mother in the first place is what he's thinking. So then he asks like, well, are you going to share it with Caleb? She says, fine, I'll show it to him, but I think I want to be alone with it first. And he's like, cool, 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 cool. Meanwhile, all throughout this chat, she keeps like grabbing little bits of his muffin and he's getting pissed off. And so like she goes to grab another piece of his muffin and he like flicks her fingers away and he goes, hey, there's plenty more just five feet to your right. Like go and get your own fucking muffin. And she says, well, if there's more muffins, why are you so worried about sharing your muffin with me? And he says, fair enough, which no, not fair enough. That's his fucking muffin. He got that muffin for himself. If he wanted half a muffin, he would have grabbed half a muffin. He would have offered you some of that muffin. Don't go eating his muffin. If you want a muffin so bad, go and grab a muffin and then eat half of your muffin. Just pick at your muffin. Why, what do you care if you don't eat the whole muffin? I don't like that. I don't like it. My dad's partner, she does that to him all the time. They'll go to a cafe. He'll be like, oh, I'll order a croissant. She's like, I don't want anything. And then she'll eat half the croissant. <laughs> and he's like, well, I wanted a full fucking croissant, but thanks, bitch. You just can't trust people like that. You can't. I'm sorry. You can't. So they're talking about all this heavy stuff. She keeps stealing his muffin. And then she says, so do you want to get some genetic testing done this morning? And he's like, uh, don't really want to do that. Why? And she says, oh, this guy I met, Matthew, he works in a lab and he thinks our genetic material might be interesting. And she says, he asked about you specifically because you're sort of an anomaly. And she explains about how he's got some traits of divergence, but not all of them. And I think normally he'd be like, hell no, but he wants the distraction from Marcus's trial. So he's like, yep, cool. Sounds great. (laughs) And she's like, cool, that's sorted then. And then she steals more muffin. And so then the door opens and Tobias describes someone coming in as a young man with slanted angular eyes and black hair. Don't love that description. And he says, I recognize him immediately as George Wu, Tori's younger brother. If you recognized him immediately as George Wu, could you not have just said that and not maybe described his eyes as his most prominent feature? If you already knew who the person was. And so George, he comes in hot. He's like, hey, everybody. Hey, where's my sister? I heard she was here with you guys. And geez, I wish someone would have given him the heads up because this is now awkward for everybody because Tris and him are looking at each other being like, oh, rot she did. And George is like, why is everyone looking at me like that? Where's my sister? Come on. And so then Kara steps forward. She's about to tell him. And for some reason, Tobias is like, nah, I can't imagine Kara sharing it well. So he gets up and talks over her. I think Kara would have done just as good a job as anybody as breaking the news to him. I mean, Kara's erudite. She's not candor, so she's not super blunt. I thought she would have been fine to deliver the news, but he's like, nah, nah, your sister did leave with us, but we were attacked and she didn't make it. Oh, so that's that's you doing a better job than Kara would have done? Just saying, oh yeah, we were attacked and she didn't make it. And George is like, what? 
And Tris says she gave her life defending us. Without her, none of us would have made it out, which I don't think is the case. I think that's a nice like little lie. That's a little white lie to make George feel better perhaps, because as I recall it, Tori was just trudging along up ahead and she just got shot. There was no big standoff. There was no big sacrifice. She just got shot and that happens. And George is like, oh my God, she's dead. And then Amar, he's like, oh yeah, I meant to tell you earlier, but didn't come up, soz. So then George and Amar are hugging each other. And Tobias is like, huh, didn't really know Amar and George knew each other, but apparently they do. It's like, okay, like, d- does it matter? Like, or is it a shock that these two people who live at the airport know each other? So then Amar and George walk out of the room and Tobias watches them walk down the hallway side by side, talking in low voices. Feels weird that we're getting such an emphasis on them two walking away, holding each other. Are they- maybe they're gay. Maybe, the- maybe they're our first gay couple of the books. That would be the real shocker. So then we cut to, it's a bit later in the morning. Someone knocks at the door and Tobias is like, who's this boy? Who's this boy? And he waves to Triss and Triss goes, oh, that's Matthew. And he's like, huh, somehow I missed her mentioning that Matthew wasn't a crusty old scientist or maybe she didn't mention it at all. So now he's getting a bit jealous of Matthew. And so Matthew's like, oh, hi, how you going? And he says, hi, I'm Tobias. And he says that because force sounds strange here where people would never identify themselves by how many fears they have. That's what he tells us. And it's like, well, it's kind of strange to name yourself after how many fears you have in Chicago as well. Like we met a lot of Dauntless. None of them were called six, seven or eight. There was only one four. And he's like, yeah, it'd be a bit weird. Be a bit weird if I called myself that outside of Chicago. Mate, it was weird there too. So then they walk off to go to wherever the genetic lab testing place is. And while they're walking through the departure gate, because it's an airport, Triss is like, what's with all the numbers? And he's like, oh, this used to be where people would wait to catch their planes. And we get a whole big explanation of how airports work. Then they're walking past all these people doing like little scientific experiments, working at computers, working with Bunsen burners and shit. And Triss says, what are they doing? And Matthew says, well, they're doing lots of stuff. Some of them are working on better ways to treat genetic damage. Some of them are developing serums for our own use instead of the experiments use. Oh boy. Dozens of projects. He says, before the factions were introduced and the serums with them. Why? I thought the serums existed before the factions. Oh, I don't care. The experiments all used to be under near constant assault from within. The serums helped the people in the experiment to keep things under control, especially the memory serum. But no one here's working on the memory serum. They do that over in the weapons lab. Why, why is he giving them so much information and yet really not saying anything at all? He's not being very cagey. I wouldn't be telling these two people that just got here yesterday about the weapons lab, but you know, he's telling them. And so Triss goes, ah, so the people in the bureau, they gave us the serums. And he's like, yeah, they actually gave you everything dull. Have you not figured that out yet? They wiped everyone's minds, set up the city and built the experiment from within. You didn't exist before this. And she's like, oh, interesting. I think because it was such an info dump when David gave his big speech, she's still not processing things. So this is why we're going over things we've already heard. We get the backstory on the serums, oh brother. He says that the memory serum is their greatest weapon. And he says it's a weapon because it arms the cities against their own rebellions. He says, erase people's memories and there's no need to kill them. They just forget what they were fighting about. He says, we can use it also against rebels from the fringe, which is about an hour from here. Sometimes fringe dwellers try to raid and the memory serum stops them without killing them. Okay, so there's a fringe. I think that's a big tidbit that Matthew lets slip. I wonder if we'll be escaping this airport and heading out to the fringe later. Who knows? 
So Matthew's just like, yeah, instead of killing people, we wipe their memories. And that's like not thought of as a bad thing. I think that's also kind of maybe really ethically wrong. Like philosophically speaking, you could say you are essentially killing that person, but okay. I'm more interested in the fact that he says, we've got this technology. We've got a memory serum. Never used it against Janine. (laughs) Never used it against Norman. He had a heart attack instead. We've got this technology, but we refuse to stop anybody from having war inside of the cities. And oh my God, I think I just slipped into thinking that this was Triss's POV. You know how I said a few weeks ago that there's no change in the Tobias and Triss POV and sometimes I forget whose perspective I'm actually reading. This is Tobias talking. So he's the one that's not processing the info dump, but he also talks the same as Triss. So I forgot that he was narrating right now. So that's my bad. So he takes them into this gene therapy room and inside there's a girl with light brown skin and a green jumpsuit and her name is Juanita. And she goes, call me Nita. And she's like, you want these two to get tests prepared? And he's like, yes, thanks. And she's like, cool, I'll sort it out. So while she starts pottering around to set up the tests, she's like, how do you guys like it here? And they're like, yeah, it's fine. And she says that she came from one of the other experiments, the Indianapolis one, which is the one that failed. And they're like, we don't know what Indianapolis is, hun. And she's like, oh yeah, that's right. It's about an hour away from here on a plane. And they're like, is that that bird looking thing that I just walked past? So then she pulls out a syringe and they're like, what's that for? And Tris goes a little bit tense. She says, I don't like to be injected with strange substances. Fair enough. And Matthew says, oh, it's just to read your genes. That's all it does. Nita can vouch for it. And Nita nods like, oh, okay. The person running the genetic testing with you can vouch for what you're telling me. Like that's enough proof. And they're like, oh, well, if Nita says it's cool, it's cool. What? Nita could be lying to you. Nita could have been memory wiped herself. She might never have been in Indianapolis. They're so trusting of these people. And Matthew just says, yep. So the fluid is actually packed with microcomputers. So we'll just be shooting microcomputers into your bloodstream. So yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Nita can vouch for it. He says, the microcomputers are designed to detect specific genetic markers and transmit the data to a computer. And so as he's finished talking, Tris just goes, cool. And she grabs the needle and she sticks it and she shoots herself up with those microcomputers. I would not be doing this, but she's like, yeah, sure. I had PTSD over needles just three seconds ago, but your explanation about microcomputers has sealed the deal for me. Let me get that needle and jab myself. So then Four's like, all right, well, jab me up too. And then Four says, so what, what are microcomputers? What are they looking for? And so then Matthew says, when our predecessors at the Bureau inserted corrected genes into your ancestors, your ancestors, so he's got good genes then. I don't know. They also included a genetic tracker, which is basically something that shows us that a person has achieved genetic healing. Okay, so they smuggled something else into their genes to signify that their genes had been fucked with. And he says, in this case, The genetic tracker is awareness during simulations. What? It's something we can easily test for, which shows us if your genes are healed or not. What? They put in a little Easter egg into everyone who had their genes played with. And what they chose to be the signifier was awareness during simulations. Why not just give them red hair or freckles or anything, anything, but they give them awareness during simulations, which is, which is apparently something that's easy to test for, but I don't know if it is. And like, why would you, if you want to test them, give them the ability to not be under control of simulations? Surely they want to run simulations on these people, right? But I I guess not because they inbuilt a little 
back door into them so that they don't get affected by simulations? What the, what the fuck? And he says, this is one of the reasons why everyone in the city has to take an aptitude test at 16. If they're aware during the test, that shows us that they might have healed genes. So they wait until people are 16 to know if their genes are good or not. I know their whole metaphor is that the drip of water against a stone slab over years can make a hole in the stone slab, but could you maybe move a bit quicker? They're waiting 16 years to see if gene correction worked. And then when this happens, then they just let them, let them carry on as normal and pick a different faction and maybe get killed by some erudite leader. What's the objective here? And then Matthew says, the only problem with the genetic tracker is that being aware during simulations and resisting serums doesn't necessarily mean that that person is divergent. It's just a strong correlation. So it doesn't even mean that they're divergent. So really, uh, he says that's the only problem with the genetic tracker. That's a big problem. If other people could be exhibiting that trait and also not being divergent, this is so stupid. He says, sometimes people will be aware during simulations or be able to resist serums, even if they still have damaged genes. Uh, then what's the point? And he says, yeah, that's why I want to look at you, Tobias, because I don't think you're divergent. I just think you're resistant to serums. What the fuck? And so then Tobias is getting all upset because he likes being divergent and he's worried that he won't be divergent. And then Matthew says, anyway, this is going to take an hour for the microcomputers to get through your system and then report back to my computer. So I'm going off to get breakfast. (laughs) So he just leaves. So Nita has to keep them company for the next hour. So Tris is saying, Nita, what's your story? So you came from an experiment, right? And she's like, yep. She says, since the Indianapolis experiment was disbanded about eight years ago, I've been hanging out here. I could have gone out into the broader population, but that felt too overwhelming. So I volunteered to come here. I used to be a janitor. I'm moving through the ranks. Yeah, I don't know if I'm buying any of this. I think her memory has been played with. Or that could just be me being a conspiracy theorist trying to inject some sense into this narrative that ultimately will go nowhere. She says that Indianapolis didn't have any factions. It was a control group, but they did have a lot of rules. They had curfew, wake up times, safety regulations, and no weapons were allowed. Which makes me think, why were weapons allowed in the Chicago experiment? A lot of people died. It didn't seem that necessary for weapons to exist. They're wiping people's memories, wipe their memories of guns. And Tris says, well, what happened? And she goes, well, even though weapons weren't allowed, some people knew how to make bombs. So they made a bomb and they set it off in a government building. Lots of people died. So then they deemed the experiment a failure. It's like, what? You're you're already wiping these people's minds and yet you're not removing their knowledge of how to make a bomb? And Tris is thinking, well, why didn't they shut down our city considering we had a whole genocide with Janine Matthews and everything? And Nita says, oh, they might still. They think of the Chicago experiment as a success, but they might still ditch it. So then after it's been an hour, Matthew's had his breakfast, he comes back. He explains some mumbo jumbo about the computer program that's reading their DNA. He's looking at Triss's DNA and he says, yep, these selections here suggest healed genes. So yeah, she's, she's healed. Great. Still doesn't explain why she's so resistant to serums. He even says he also sees the genetic tracker, which is the simulation awareness. So he says the combination of healed genes and simulation awareness genes is just what I expected to see from a divergent. But this is the strange part. And he points at something at the screen, but then stops explaining it. And he just doesn't say what the strange part is. So Tris is still a superhero somehow. And we don't know. Matthew knows, I guess, or Matthew suspects something, but he's not going to share it with us. Then he goes to Tobias's genes and he says, yep, you've got the components for simulation awareness, but you don't have healed genes. So you're not divergent, soz. He says, your genes are still damaged 
You just have a genetic anomaly that allows you to be aware during simulations anyway. So you have the appearance of being divergent without actually being one. And he's like, well, that's fucked. He's all upset. He feels all damaged and he's a little bit gypped. And he's like, wow, the one good thing my father had, his divergence didn't reach me. And well, it doesn't necessarily mean your dad was divergent. Maybe he also just was resistant to simulations. I don't think anybody knows what anybody's doing here. We're all taking things at face value. And I think we all just need to take a step back and realize that this is all mumbo jumbo and it's stupid. So he's all butthurt. She says, it's not that big of a deal. And he says, you don't get to tell me if it's a big deal or not. And she's like, you're the same person for, you're the same person five minutes ago as you were four months ago, as you were 18 years ago. Relax, this doesn't change a thing. And he's like fighting back with her being like, oh really? Okay, so the truth affects nothing, does it? And she's like, nah, it doesn't. And he's like, you know what? I need to take a walk, laters. So he walks out. Then Nita catches up to him. He's stormed off, but Nita's legged it to catch up with him. And she says, hey, no pressure, but I want to talk to you about all this genetic damage stuff. If you're interested, meet me here tonight at nine and maybe don't bring your girlfriend. I don't know why you can't just have the conversation now, Nita. I don't know why everything has to be like secret under the cover of darkness. And he says, why can't I bring my girlfriend? And Nita says, because she's a GP. And I'm thinking, I don't remember her becoming a doctor. And she goes, no, she's genetically pure. So they call genetically pure people GPs, which just rolls off the tongue. She's like, trust me, GPs don't understand things. And then Nita's like, all right, got to go. See you later. And that's pretty much the end of the chapter. So Tris is a GP and he's a, what, an, an NGP or he's a GD, genetically damaged. I don't know how he's going to self-identify, but now he's going through a crisis. So let's leave it there. I'll catch up with you guys next week. Bye. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations, and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch, and more. To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.